There's an old story, and this is so old that I imagine a lot of us, maybe even most of us, have heard this one before. But there's an old story about a fellow who went on vacation, and he left his cat, his prized pet, in the charge of his brother. And after a few days, he called to check in and asked how things are, and he asked his brother, how's, how's my cat? And he said, the cat's dead. And the guy just exploded. What, what do you mean the cat's dead? You can't just tell me the cat is dead like that. That's no way to break bad news. And his brother said, well, what would you like me to say? Well, you have to break bad news gently. So maybe you should have said something like, well, the cat is on the roof and we're having trouble coaxing it down. And then when I called back tomorrow, you could say, well, we still haven't gotten the cat down, but the fire department is out. They're going to rescue it. And then the next day, you could have said something like, well, the cat seemed the worse for wear after the ordeal, and I'm taking it to the vet. He's trying to fix her up. And then finally, when I called back the next day, you could have said, well, the vet did all he could, but the cat succumbed to her injuries. And his brother said, well, I'm, you know, I'm sorry. I, I didn't think about that. I'll, I'll try to be more sensitive in the future when I deliver that sort of news. He said, that's, that's all right. I was just upset about the cat. It's, it's okay. Well, what else is going on? Well, mom is on the roof. <laughs> now, that's amusing. It is. But a great deal of our society seems to have a real problem accepting the truth when it conflicts with their feelings, or even accepting the idea that such a thing as objective, absolute truth even exists. To give just a big bird's-eye view, the most cursory sketch of the history of ideas possible, the pre-modern view was that knowledge depended upon the existence of God. I think of the medieval philosopher Anselm's motto, faith-seeking understanding. So the concept was that all human inquiry, not just theological, but philosophical, scientific, whatever, you name it, all of it was an attempt to understand God and the way that he had ordered the world. The modern period elevated human reason to that primary position. Now, not all, and not even most, actually, of the Enlightenment thinkers were atheists, but they did their best to make God irrelevant to our knowledge. And so human inquiry for about 300 years, on up to about World War II, was focused on an ever-increasing discovery of facts with this unbridled optimism that we could know, we could discover what truth was just through our own observation. But in the last half century or so, the postmodern movement emerged to question the viability of that modern view. It presented a valid critique that we aren't just neutral observers. Each of us has baggage, we have biases, we have presuppositions that we bring to any act of observation, so how can we trust that we ourselves are neutral 
that we're objective? How can we tell we're judging rightly? Now, that criticism, insofar as it goes, is valid, and it's actually consistent with Scripture and the warnings it gives us not to exalt human wisdom. But postmodernism actually went further, questioning whether such a thing as objective truth was even possible. As one scholar has put it, the pre-modern said that without God, there would be no knowledge. The postmodern say, we have no God and no knowledge. The pre-modern said that without an identity of reality and the good, there would be no right and wrong. The postmodern say, there is neither good nor right and wrong. And so here we are today, and the postmodern project seems to have ended in despair. We're still sorting out what comes next, what's post, postmodernism. But it's left us in a state of chaos. How do we even approach the world? To the point that a few years ago, 2016, the Oxford English Dictionary's word of the year, new word that had been coined and was now being widely used, was post-truth. Post-truth is an adjective. It's relating to or denoting circumstances in which objective facts are less influential in shaping public opinion than appeals to emotion and personal belief. Does that sound like our society today? It's not that objective truth doesn't exist. It's that objective truth doesn't matter. In the face of this, Christians proclaim to believe in Jesus Christ, someone who came and revealed God in the flesh, full of grace and truth, John chapter 1 and verse 14. In his high priestly prayer in John chapter 17, Jesus prayed that God might sanctify, that is, set apart his followers in the truth. And how would he do that? Your word is truth, John chapter 17 and verse 17. See, the Christian worldview proclaims not only does truth exist, but it is knowable. And it's knowable in the revelation God has given us in the word, in scripture, and in the eternal word. Jesus Christ. But the question for us is how do we live lives that embrace truth in a world that has rejected it? There's a story in the Old Testament that addresses this question almost directly. It's one that was used in our vacation Bible school this week. And it's not a terribly familiar story. In, in fact, some of our teachers didn't even know it before they read about it in the material. And that lack of our knowledge, along with its vital message, is what prompted me to use it this morning. In fact, I even have these great VBS-style illustrations to go right along with it here. We find this story in 1 Kings chapter 22. And just to set the scene, as we see here on this slide, after the death of Solomon, the kingdom of Israel was divided in two. The northern kingdom, which continued to be named Israel, had a succession of bad kings, just one after another after another. And the most infamous of those was Ahab. Most of us remember Ahab and his wife Jezebel. Ahab features in our story this morning. 
Ahab and the king of Syria, a fellow named Ben-Hadad, were about to go to war over a city named Ramoth-Gilead. Now, if you look back in 1 Kings chapter 20, about three years before, Ahab and Ben-Hadad had already been at war. Ahab had defeated him twice. And as part of the peace terms, Ben-Hadad had agreed to cede some cities back to Israel that his father had taken from their territory years before. Ramoth-Gilead, east of the Jordan, was one of those cities. But now, here we are three years later, it still hadn't been returned. Tensions were rising again, and Ahab decided rather than relying on diplomacy, he was just going to go, and he was going to take that city back by force. But he wasn't sure he could do it alone. And so he appealed to Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, for help. Now, while all of those kings of Israel were bad, as I said before, Judah actually had some good kings in their history scattered here and there. Jehoshaphat was one of those good kings. In fact, the text says about him that he did not turn aside from the way of Asa, his father, doing what was right in the sight of the Lord. Jehoshaphat was a good king on the whole, a man who served God. And while Judah and Israel were often at odds in their history, after all, they had a pretty messy breakup, at this point, they were at peace. Jehoshaphat's son, Jehoram, was even married to Ahab's daughter, Athaliah. So Ahab invites Jehoshaphat up. They have a big banquet, and he asks Jehoshaphat to go into battle with him, and Jehoshaphat promptly agreed. Ahab said, will you go with me to battle at Ramoth-Gilead? And Jehoshaphat said to the king of Israel, I am as you are, my people as your people, my horses as your horses. But Jehoshaphat did put one stipulation on it. Inquire first for the word of the Lord. So Ahab called in 400 of his prophets, and he asked the question to them, should I go up to battle at Ramoth-Gilead? And wouldn't you know it that each and every one of those 400 men said, Go up, O king, the Lord will deliver it into your hand. You see, these prophets knew where their bread was buttered. When a sort of man like Ahab is on the throne and he wants prophets around to tell him what he wants to hear, you can get all sorts who were ready to be handpicked and on the payroll like that. One man, the leader of them, Zedekiah, even put horns up on his head. He went and he was pushing around, uh, saying, Thus says the Lord, with these you shall push the Syrians until they are destroyed. And all this, of course, is precisely what Ahab wanted them to predict. But Jehoshaphat, remember, was a good man. He was a worshiper of the Lord, of Yahweh, unlike Ahab, who worshiped pagan gods. And so Jehoshaphat says, is there not here another prophet of the Lord of whom we may inquire? Something doesn't seem quite right about these guys. Surely there's there's someone else that we can ask. And the king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, there is yet one man by whom we may inquire of the Lord, Micaiah, the son of Imlah. But I hate him. For he never prophesies good concerning me, but evil. There's one, but I don't like him. He never tells me what I want to hear. But Jehoshaphat was insistent. Let's, let's hear what he has to say. 
And so they send for him. Now the guard that goes to fetch Micaiah, he knows exactly how the game is played. And so while they're walking along to where the kings are sitting, he says to him, Behold, the words of the prophets with one accord are favorable to the king. Let your word be like the word of one of them and speak favorably. But Micaiah's reply to that sort of subtle intimidation is a model for all of God's people everywhere. As the Lord lives, what the Lord says to me, that I will speak. Micaiah wasn't one of these false prophets. He wasn't one of these yes men. He wasn't afraid of Ahab. And so when he came into Ahab's presence, they put the same question to him. Shall I go up to battle at Ramoth Gilead? And Micaiah says in verse number 15, Go up and triumph. The Lord will give it into the hand of the king. Now, I don't know how he delivered that. I don't know if it was way over the top like that or if it was deadpan or, or what, but something in his tone gave him away. And so Ahab said, How many times shall I make you swear that you speak to me nothing but the truth in the name of the Lord? Ahab said, I want the truth. Lay it on me. Nothing but that. And so Micaiah, there, surrounded by those 400 false prophets, in the face of this king who, by his own admission, hated him, delivered the painful truth. I saw all Israel scattered on the mountains as sheep that have no shepherd. And the Lord said, These have no master. Let each return to his home in peace. Ahab was going to die in battle. His army was going to be defeated and scattered. Now that obviously wasn't what Ahab wanted to hear. And so pretty characteristically for him, he whined. He said, didn't I tell you that he wouldn't prophesy good concerning me but evil? Micaiah said, therefore hear the word of the Lord. I saw the Lord sitting on his throne and all the host of heaven standing beside him on his right hand and on his left. And the Lord said, who will entice Ahab that he may go up and fall at Ramoth Gilead? And one said one thing and another said another. Then a spirit came forward and stood before the Lord, saying, I will entice him. And the Lord said to him, By what means? And he said, I will go out and will be a lying spirit in the mouth of all of his prophets. And he said, You are to entice him, and you shall succeed. Go out and do so. Some commentators have had problems with this, but it seems pretty clear that everyone in the crowd understood that Micaiah was speaking allegorically here. And he was saying that all of those prophets were lying. He was the only one who was telling the truth. If Ahab went up to Ramoth-Gilead, he was going to die, and his army was going to be defeated. Ahab certainly understood it that way. And he said to the officer, Put this fellow in prison and feed him meager rations of bread and water until I come in peace. And Micaiah said, If you return in peace, the Lord has not spoken by me. And he said, hear, all you peoples. Now Ahab knew, Ahab knew that Micaiah had delivered the word of the Lord. And he knew too that all those 400 prophets were just telling him what he wanted to hear. So did he go up to Ramoth-Gilead? Yeah. 
he did. He decided that he would rather believe what he wanted to be true than what he knew to be true. We know that he believed Micaiah because when the two armies were about to enter the field, he took some precautions. He said to Jehoshaphat, he said, you put on your armor and I'm going to go into battle in disguise. Evidently, he thought that, well, Micaiah says they're going to be targeting the king of Israel and if nobody knows that I'm the king of Israel, maybe I can escape from here. And for reasons that have never been clear to me, for some reason, Jehoshaphat decides to go along with that plan. But at any rate, Ahab was on to something in a way, because if you actually read the story, whether it was from a personal vendetta or whether he was just trying to end the battle sooner, Ben-Hadad in verse 31 actually had 32 captains of his chariots, and he'd said, fight with neither small nor great, but only with the king of Israel. So 32 of Ben-Hadad's best men were handpicked for this sort of special ops mission. You need to go out and kill the king of Israel specifically. Now, if Micaiah had given them the orders or if they had known what Micaiah had predicted, they couldn't have tried to do better than to carry it out that way. So when battle was joined, they saw someone there who appeared to be the king and they started to make for him. But just at the critical moment, Jehoshaphat cried out, rallying his men, I suppose. And they realized it wasn't Ahab. And so they withdrew. They'd have to go back to Ben-Hadad and report that their mission had failed. But did Ahab escape? No. A Syrian archer just at random fired an arrow into the air, not even aiming at anything. And it just so happened that it struck Ahab between the joints of the armor. To his credit, he had his men prop him up there in the chariot and he stuck around for the rest of the battle. But as evening came and the battle ended, Ahab died. And about sunset, a cry went through the army, every man to his city and every man to his own country. The army scattered, just like Micaiah said it would. They took Ahab back to Samaria for burial. They washed the blood out of his chariot and dogs came up and licked his blood there off the ground, fulfilling another prophecy, a word of the Lord from Elijah. You see, the word of the Lord is the truth, whether we choose to believe it or not. Ahab found that out the hard way. Now, this story naturally raises some questions for us through the eyes of these characters in regards to our relationship to the truth. The first question is, do we love the truth? Ahab didn't. He loved what he wanted to be true. And that's precisely the situation that exists in our contemporary society. A survey last year, 2018, from the Barna Group indicated that a plurality of Americans, not a majority, but almost a majority, 44% of Americans feel that truth is relative. Only 36% would claim that truth is absolute. Equally alarming, when asked whom they consider to be a credible source of the truth, 32% said that they don't trust anyone. They rely only on their own instincts. So in other words, for a third of people, I and the source of truth. 
In contrast, Scripture declares that it is the truth, as we've seen. Or I could think about what Paul says, that all Scripture is breathed out by God. It's profitable for doctrine, correction, for reproof, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, complete, thoroughly equipped for all good works. And we don't have to merely accept that, take it at face value. We know that's true because it's proved itself to be credible. We can put the word to the test. That's what Ahab did, right? Micaiah said, if you come back in peace, the Lord is not spoken by me. And of course, he didn't. Ahab discovered that the word of the Lord is the truth, despite his feelings, to his own regret. Our feelings about the truth are ultimately irrelevant. Our instincts are unreliable. The truth is the truth, whether we like it or not. We could include a word about the false prophets in here, too. I don't know if any of them had ever had a genuine word from the Lord or not. I don't know if any of them ever had loved the truth. But they've long since decided that they loved power and prestige and the money that came from Ahab more than they did the truth. There are still false prophets like that telling people what they want to hear. My great-grandfather was the preacher at the Morton Street Church of Christ in Denison, Texas in the mid-60s. And Denison was also the location of the Waples Grocery Company. Now, you may not be familiar with that because it ceased to exist. It's passed on into some other names, but it existed for decades. Uh, you do know some of their products that still exist. White Swan, that's their brand. Uh, Ranch-style beans, they were the first ones to bring that to market. So this is a profitable company, prestigious company in town. And the Methodist church there in town was and still is the Waples Memorial United Methodist Church. So this was the place where everyone who was anyone in town was a member. Well, my great-grandfather and uh, the preacher at another uh, one of the churches of Christ in town got to be good friends with the Methodist preacher. They'd go and have coffee at Dairy Queen two or three times a week, and they'd have religious discussions. And after a while, it seemed that the Methodist preacher agreed with them pretty much right on down the line in everything that they talked about, including notably the importance of baptism, of immersion, and the connection it has to the forgiveness of sins. And finally, great, my great-granddad asked him one day, he said, if you believe basically the same way that we do, you think we're closer to the Bible, then what are you down there preaching that Methodist doctrine for? And he looked my great-granddad straight in the eye, and he said, for $25,000 a year, what are you boys making? $135 a week, uh, if you want the comparison. As I said, this is the mid-60s. I looked it up. That'd be about $200,000 a year today. And he had one of the nicest houses in town on top of him. Now, I don't say that to impugn the sincerity of Methodists in general. I don't think that most professing Christians are that way. That's why that story is so shocking. And I don't say that because I think we have some sort of monopoly on the truth and we can't be wrong in some of the things we might teach or believe or practice. But my point is only about that man. That man was a false prophet. That man quite literally sold the truth for money. 
Buy truth and do not sell it. Buy wisdom, instruction, and understanding, says the Proverbs writer. Chapter 23, verse number 23. May we all love the truth more than our feelings and certainly more than anything that this world has to offer us. But if you're here in a church service on a Sunday morning, I take it for granted that most of us probably do love the truth. At least we want to love the truth. But it's not enough to just love the truth in an idealistic sense. We're faced with a second question. Do our lives conform to the truth? And Jehoshaphat gives us an interesting example here, and it's something that I didn't even think about or notice until I was looking at this story again this week. As we said, Jehoshaphat was one of the good kings of Judah, and so he asked for a word of the Lord before they go into battle. But did you notice when I told the story? He had already made up his mind about what he was going to do before he asked for that word from the Lord. He said, I am as you are, my people as your people, my horses as your horses. He'd committed, he'd made his decision. And only then did he say to the king of Israel, inquire first for the word of the Lord. Jehoshaphat made his decision, and then he hoped that the word of the Lord would align with it. As someone I read wrote about it, he wanted to get truth on his side rather than being on the side of truth. And because of that, he's actually rebuked when he comes back home safely to Jerusalem. The parallel account in 2 Chronicles 19, a prophet named Jehu meets him. He says, what do you mean going and aligning yourself like that with an ungodly king like Ahab? You see, the point is we must be careful to follow the truth wherever it leads us rather than making up our minds about where we want to go in the first place and then just hoping we can shoehorn the truth in to whatever our preconceived notions are. A good example of this that will probably be familiar to some of us uh, is a story from 2014 that appeared in Rolling Stone magazine called A Rape on Campus. And it told about a, a horrifying assault by fraternity members at the University of Virginia on a girl there. The only problem is that story was entirely fabricated. It started to unravel almost as soon as it was published, and there were red flags all along the way through the process that normal, good, basic journalistic practice would have caught. But the writer of that story, Sabrina Erdley, didn't look for the truth and follow it wherever it led, conform her story to the truth. She had a narrative in mind that she wanted to perpetuate, and she went hunting for a story that would fit that narrative. And so whatever didn't fit that along the way was, was thrown out. The truth was ignored in the pursuit of her agenda to the point that Rolling Stone had to retract that story. They were written up in I don't know how many other publications, and uh, she's out of a job as far as I know. We must be willing to conform to the truth, no matter how difficult that is, collectively and individually. It's important for us as a church. We claim to emphasize restoration. We want to go back and look and see what the Bible says. We want to be people who are shaped by Scripture. What did the earliest Christians believe and practice? And we want to use that as a, a model for what we do. 
that's the basis of the lessons we're having in our Sunday morning Bible classes right now, those of you who are in there. But that means that we must always be open to the possibility that we may be wrong. We need to be willing to follow the truth wherever it leads us. We can't just do what we do as some sort of received body of tradition. Well, we do it because that's the way we've always done it. That's not being guided by the truth. Now, I'm not saying we'll end up in a different place. We might end up in the very same place. But we also sometimes might need to make some changes. The point is we have to always be willing to evaluate and reevaluate and reevaluate ourselves, holding ourselves up to the light of Scripture. That holds even more true for our personal lives. There are a lot of people in the Western world, in this country in particular, who profess to be Christians, and I think they have the best of intentions, but they position themselves above Scripture rather than submitting to it. Yeah, I, I know that's what the Bible says, but it can't possibly mean that, can it? I mean, that contradicts our, our lived experience. That's too difficult. That's too hard a word. We're more formed by our culture and by our worldview than we are by Scripture. And so we look for bits and pieces that we can pull out of context here, and we reshape, and we try to, to fit it in there, and we try to make it be what we already want the truth to be. We're like Jehoshaphat. We make up our mind about what we're going to do, and then we hope that the word of the Lord is on our side. The sexual ethics that the Bible teaches are obviously questioned in many quarters today in a lot of different ways, and that goes for whether we're talking about promiscuity or whether we're talking about same-sex relationships or whether we're talking about the sanctity of marriage. But the truth is God's ideal is one man and one woman for life. In the very first pages of the Bible, in Genesis chapter 1, we read about human beings made in the image of God. He created them male and female. He created them. Our culture increasingly tells us that that is simplistic, binary thinking. But Scripture presents that as a foundational truth. And lest we get a little bit too comfortable and think that this criticism of our worldview and twisting the truth only fits people of a, a certain sort of way of thinking, perhaps some of us should go back and read at times what Scripture has to say about the way God's people are supposed to treat resident aliens. God is greatly concerned in Scripture about how we treat the most vulnerable among us. And you can read through the Old Testament in particular and see the emphasis he places on how we treat the sojourner, the refugee, the alien, the immigrant. And the basis of that is the fact that God's people were once refugees too. Abraham was a man called up out of his country going where he didn't know he was going to go. Jesus tells a whole parable, that of the Good Samaritan, to answer the question, who is my neighbor? And you know what the answer is? Everyone is my neighbor. There are no limits to that. Even the hated and despised Samaritan, the Jews viewed Samaritans as a mongrel race. The man in the ditch found out the Samaritan was his neighbor. Even my enemy 
is my neighbor. The Muslim is my neighbor. The illegal immigrant is my neighbor. Flip it around. The neo-Nazi is my neighbor. Those are hard teachings. But if you only love those who love you, then you're no better than the Gentiles and the tax collectors. That's what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount. Now I expect at this point I've made everyone in here at one point or another sufficiently uncomfortable. Maybe even angry. That's okay. The truth should make us uncomfortable if we really face it because it confronts us with where we are lacking and it challenges us to shape our lives according to it rather than to try to twist the truth to what we want it to be. My point here isn't about what governmental policy should be in any of these areas, whether we're talking about uh, sexuality or whether we're talking about uh, who we're fighting in wars or immigration policy. My whole point is what a Christian response should be. And we need to maintain this distinction between the church and the world. We're different. And our worldview shouldn't be shaped based on whether or not we consider ourselves to be progressives or conservatives or Democrats or Republicans or even Americans, but the fact that we are Christians, it should be shaped by the truth and nothing but the truth. Finally, Micaiah asks us if we will speak the truth. He told the truth as unpopular as it was, in the face of all of that pressure that he was facing, the 400 prophets, the threat of the king. You remember that key verse? As the Lord lives, what the Lord says to me, that will I speak. Now this goes especially for those of us who stand up here publicly and and claim to speak God's word, to be proclaimers of it. We have to guard against telling audiences just what they want to hear. Paul warns about the fact that in the last days, there'll be people who just have, want to have their ears tickled. We need to guard against that. I don't think there's any danger of me having done that today. But whether we speak publicly or not, all of us will be called to tell the truth repeatedly in our lives. That's especially true in a society that is increasingly, uh, overtly, anti-Christian in a lot of ways. There's at least a a good deal of social pressure right now against speaking too loudly. You need to to mute your voice. You can be Christian, just don't be too Christian. We don't want to see it too much. We don't want to hear too much about it. Now, we should always speak the truth in love. Paul is clear about that in Ephesians, and if this weren't already such a long lesson, I'd love to talk more about that. But it's it's a key point because there are many people today whose doctrine might be all right, all down the line, but they have no love when they speak the truth. They think that somehow speaking the truth in love is axiomatic. Well, I'm telling you the truth, so I must love you. I wouldn't tell it to you. But that's not right. They're left with an intellectual faith that's cold, that's repelling, that puts people off. Their lack of love cripples that truth that they claim to revere. We don't have to be contentious to contend for the faith. And we should be sensitive to those people who have different experiences from us. 
But I'm more concerned this morning, especially in our society, with those who are unbalanced to the other side of this equation. It's a grave threat in our culture to value love above the truth, to exalt our feelings in particular above it, not really love, but to exalt a, a shallow sentimentality. You see, love that doesn't hold to the truth isn't real love. That's what Paul says, 1 Corinthians thirteen six. love does not rejoice at wrongdoing. It rejoices with the truth. Ethel Holder was a dear Christian lady who lived in center. She passed away this week. My dad preached her funeral on Friday. Some years ago, her best friend, also a member there of the church in center, was, was wronged deeply, hurt by a man there in the church, and he and his family left for some time. And then after a few years, he came back. He had a letter of repentance, confessing his sin, asking publicly for forgiveness, read in front of the church. He went to this other lady, sat down with her, and asked her specifically, he said, I'm sorry, I know I hurt you, I sinned, I did wrong. Will you please forgive me? She said, I just don't know if I can. A few days later, my dad and Ethel and this woman, her best friend, were sitting down, drinking their iced tea after supper. And this woman mentioned again, you know, I just don't know if I can ever forgive him. And Ethel said, he confessed his sin publicly. He asked you to forgive him. You have to forgive him. And that woman responded, I don't have to do a thing. She said it more forcefully than that. I don't have to do a thing that I don't want to do. And that ended their friendship. As far as I know, they never spoke again. A few days later, Ethel was talking with my dad, and that conversation came up. And she said, you know, I knew when I said that, that that would probably be the end of our friendship but it was more important to tell the truth. Do we love the truth? Will we conform our lives to the truth? Do we have the courage to speak the truth like Micaiah, like Ethel Holder, even when it's costly, especially when it's costly? May God help us all to love the truth. Maybe you're here this morning and you've never become a Christian. You're outside of Christ. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. That is an absolute statement. No one comes to the Father but by me. So I want to encourage you today, don't wait till it's too late. Put your trust in him. Turn to God in repentance. Be buried with Jesus in baptism. Have your sins washed away. Be added to his people. Begin walking in the truth. Maybe you're here this morning. You already are 
a Christian, but rather than allowing the truth to guide us wherever it may, even if that's uncomfortable, we've tried to make the truth fit what we want it to say. Maybe we need to make changes in a public way this morning. Whatever your need may be, if you're subject to the invitation, he invites you to come now while we stand and while we sing. Early in the morning, hey, see the little baby, hey.